You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We are starting the Gospel of John today, but we're actually going to start at the back as John gives us insight into why he wrote this book at the very end of the book. And so we want to see that purpose before we begin our study so that we can understand that everything that we are going to do within this study is meant to get us to that conclusion, to get us to um, the purpose that he wrote this book for. Every every book that we've covered has, for me, flown out of the previous book that we've studied here. And so we had we had finished up the, uh, the revelation of Jesus. Um, and, and so coming out of the book of Revelation, I told you that anytime we do a New Testament book, I like to go touch into the Old Testament before we go to another New Testament book, because I don't want to ever neglect the Old Testament in our teaching. It's very easy to just stay in the New Testament and, and stay with the familiar. And um, so coming out of the book of Revelation, I wanted to go to the Old Testament, but it didn't feel connected to just jump into a random Old Testament book. And so I told you we were going to go to the book of Hebrews because it's so heavy uh, tied to the Old Testament, but it's so uh, focused and centered on Jesus, who we had talked so much about in the book of Revelation. So I wanted us to see Jesus in light of what we had talked about in Revelation. Let's hold fast to him. Let's cling to him. Let's wait for him. Let's see what the book of Hebrews has to say about that, which is very rich with Old Testament uh, teaching. And so we went to the book of Hebrews and, and coming now out of the book of Hebrews, I told you, I want to go to a gospel because we've spent so much time talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And he comes to uh, put an end to so much of the Old Testament system and the, and the sacrifices. And, and he, he accomplishes all those things and renders them no longer necessary for us to do. Um, and so I want us to come out of the book of Hebrews to go and see that in the narrative format, to go see Jesus that we've talked about so much in the book of Revelation. We've talked about so much in the book of Hebrews. I want us to see now, uh, in, in light of all of that teaching, his, his earthly ministry and, and what we learn from that and what we glean from that. And so uh, we come to the gospel of John, and I, I particularly chose it for a couple of different reasons. One, no matter how much I tried to manipulate the teaching, there was no way to get into our gospel study uh, before Christmas was over. And, and it felt kind of anticlimactic to have all of the Christmas discussion, all the Christmas celebration, and for on us, for January 13th, for us to start in, in Luke and, and do the Christmas story. It just kind of felt like, man, we just, we just did all that. And I feel like it's just obvious, like, man, we just didn't plan very well to get that uh, planned before for Christmas season. But, but really, the, the bigger reason for choosing this book is we've talked so much about believing in Jesus and persevering in the faith through all the challenges in Revelation, through all of the, the theological challenges in the book of Hebrews, where these people were tempted to abandon Jesus and to go back to the old system, uh, that the book of John is written to bring us to initial faith and to keep us in the faith. And so I think it ties in very well with what we've been learning in the book of Revelation and in the book of Hebrews, that, that we want to hold fast to Jesus and not just this idea of Jesus, but to really see him in his earthly narrative. We want to hold fast to that historical Jesus as he revealed himself in his earthly ministry. And so John writes for that specific purpose. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right, so he's telling us exactly why he has written this book. Now you skip down to John chapter 21, and you look at the very last verse there. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Both of these passages, these small passages, both of them tell us that John has uh, an inexhaustible amount of information about Jesus through experience, right? That he has walked and talked with Jesus. He has been with Jesus. He has experienced Jesus. And, and he has selectively chosen to write down some information to us about Jesus. And he has filtered that through his goal and his purpose of having us believe Jesus. So there's some things that he's chosen to leave out. And he's admitting that. He's saying, there's a lot of other things I could have written because there's a lot of other things that he did. There's a lot of other conversations that we had. There's a lot of other sermons that he taught me. 
These were chosen, these were written down for this specific purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All right, so let's look at our summary sentence for today. This is the the big idea. This is everything that I want to say to you today packaged in one sentence. The Gospel of John is a calculated recollection of Jesus's earthly life with the purpose being to bring us to initial faith that grows into a continual faith that ultimately can be described as a life-changing faith. The Gospel of John is a calculated recollection of Jesus's earthly life with the purpose being to bring us to initial faith that grows into a continual faith that ultimately can be described as a life-changing faith. For our kids, our study of John is meant to help us believe in Jesus in a way that changes the way we live. All right, so this isn't just a book to point people to that have questions about Jesus that aren't Christians that, that need to come to salvation, but it is certainly that type of book. It certainly contains that type of information. What, what does it look like to believe in Jesus? Why should we believe in Jesus? How do we believe in Jesus? We're going to be able to answer those questions through this gospel. So it certainly brings us to initial faith, but it's also for us as Christians to study, to know, to learn, to meditate on, to find encouragement in, to keep our faith going. So belief is not just a one-time thing, it's an ongoing thing. And so, yes, he writes to us for us to believe initially, but ultimately John would say, I, I want you to believe for the rest of your life. I want you to keep believing. I want you to keep persevering in the faith, right? So I'm writing to bring you to initial faith, but I'm also writing that your faith would continue to grow. And what he means by faith is something that radically changes our life, that it's a life-changing faith. He says, I'm writing that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, you're going to receive a type of life that you don't currently have a type of life you don't currently have. And we're going to see how that's both an immediate thing and a delayed thing. That, that when we talk about life in Jesus, there are implications for today until he comes back. There is a different type of life that we enjoy now. Ultimately, there is a much better life that we enjoy in the future, right? That everlasting life that's described to us in John chapter three. That if we'll believe in Jesus who, who came to die for the sins of the world, if we will believe in him, we will have life everlasting, Okay. Um, so it's a, a, a calculated recollection of Jesus' earthly life. There's a lot of things that aren't in the book of John that we're about to talk about that he chose not to take the time to write down. Why? Was it, was it that it wasn't important? No, absolutely important for some different purposes. But for the purpose that he's writing, John says, man, I don't want to muddy the waters. I don't want to, to overload you with, with any details that aren't needed for this purpose, and that's for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in what I'm going to give you, you will have a different life, a life that you don't currently have. You're going to receive life from him, okay? So let's jump into, from an introduction or introductory standpoint, uh, some things to get us started, and then we'll jump into uh, kind of an understanding of this text found here in John chapter 20. From the authorship standpoint, it's the Apostle of John, for our kids that are keep, keeping notes, I'm going to give you the answers to the questions that I have for you as well. Who wrote the Gospel of John? The answer is really simple. It's John. This is Jesus' disciple. This is the brother of James. This is the son of Zebedee. Uh, most likely his mother is uh, Salome as well. You can look at Mark 15, 40 and Matthew 27, 56 to see those two passages and how they correlate to show her to be the mother uh, of John. Uh, it's very possible that he's also Jesus' cousin. Uh, we're going to see in our study that he begins as a disciple of John the Baptist and eventually is, is transferred from following John the Baptist over to Jesus. Okay, and that's, that was John the Baptist's purpose that we'll see to, to kind of pave the way for Jesus. And so he's got some people that are following him and then some of them shift over and become that official group of disciples that follow Jesus. This is the same author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book that we've already studied, the book of Revelation. So John penned all of those. What's great about his writing is that he gives us an eyewitness firsthand account, right? And so he's going to write these things, but he isn't writing them uh, based on oral tradition passed down to him. He is writing from firsthand perspective. We get that from 1 John 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. John says, I have firsthand knowledge of him. I was with him. I walked with him. I talked with him. I touched him. I've experienced him. And he says, I'm passing on this information to you. Not something that's been passed down to me, but something that I have completely and personally experienced. Okay? So John writes this gospel. Who does he write it to? He writes it really to just Christians in general, to the church in general, potentially those who have been in conflict with the Jews. Uh, We're going to show you in a minute here that it's probably a later date And we know that the book of Hebrews talked about a lot of the conflict that the church was having with the Jewish population, them wanting the church to convert back to the Old Testament system, a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Let's re-embrace the sacrificial system. So John is writing to Christians, potentially those who are in conflict with the Jews, because he references the Jews a lot in this gospel. Okay, so for our kids, the book is written to Christians. All right, when was it written? Very possibly it was written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD. There's not strong evidence really to point us in a direction about the date. Um, We know that the destruction of the temple is not mentioned anywhere in this book. So either it has to come before AD 70 when the temple is destroyed, or it comes enough in the future of that happening that it was no longer relevant to talk about, that it was already like, hey, we know it, we get it, we understand it, we've moved on from it. Okay, so if it's written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, it's enough past the destruction of the temple where it doesn't really need to be commented on, okay? Um, I also think it helps us to better understand uh, why he would have written the things that he did because it's very possible that these other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are already in circulation, and we'll see why that may be important for us to know too, okay? So, probably written to Christians, probably somewhere between 80 to 90 AD, the uniqueness of this gospel. And it is different from the other three. Okay, so the other three are known as the synoptic gospels, which really is just a fancy way of saying that they're written from from a similar viewpoint. Their, Their presentation is very similar. They talk about a lot of the same things. The structure and flow of how they carry out their writing is very similar as well. So you're gonna find a lot of the same things overlapping in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of difference in the content in the Gospel of John. So it may be that John kind of has read through the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and he thinks to himself, man, we've left out a lot of stuff. There's a lot of, a lot of other stuff that needs to be written that these other three did not write about, okay? So some of the uniqueness that we see here, one is that it deals primarily with Jesus's ministry in Judea, especially Jerusalem, while other gospel accounts focus more heavily on Galilee. Um, So because we're talking about Jesus in two different regions, we're going to get a lot of different um, stories, a lot of different information, because there's more of a focus on what happened in Judea and Jerusalem versus Galilee. All right? Um, There are no unreconcilable contradictions between John and the other gospels. Okay? So we're we're not in fear of, man, which one do we take, the three or this one? Like, which one's accurate? They're both accurate. Okay, they're both true, and any seeming contradictions can be justifiably explained and understood. Okay, so there's no contradictions that we have to worry about between these gospels. Some highlights here it mentions the Father 121 times and the word believe 99 times uh, in this book. All right, some things that are excluded. There's, there's a lot of things that are excluded from this book in relationship to the other three. Um, there's no genealogy of Jesus. There's no manger scene, right? Like, like you don't typically open up the Gospel of John at, at Christmas time to talk about the birth of Jesus unless you want to talk about how Jesus does not come into existence at Christmas, right? John 1 talks about his eternality, right? Like he, Jesus has always been here. He doesn't start to exist at Christmas. But there's no Christmas story to go to in the book of John. There's no mention of Jesus' childhood. We don't get Jesus' baptism here. We don't see anything about the temptation of Jesus with Satan. There's no Mount of Transfiguration. There's no parables. There's no scene in Gethsemane. There's no ascension. And there's no great commission given to us here. 
Okay. There's also no mention of uh, scribes or lepers or tax collectors or Sadducees or uh, demoniacs. But, like, there's none of that in this gospel. Right? Those are things that we're very familiar with when we study the other gospels. We know about Jesus casting out demons. Right? We know about Jesus' discussion with the Sadducees, this group that doesn't believe in the resurrection, which is also one of the arguments for why it's written after AD 70, because the Sadducees and, and what they were doing kind of went away after the temple destruction. So there's no mention of the Sadducees, because maybe they're not even relevant anymore when John's writing this book. No lepers, no tax collectors. It does include miracles, but they're very specific miracles. Okay? Very specific miracles. And, they're, and they're, they're, they're related as signs. And so you get the very first miracle of Jesus, which is what? Turning the water into wine. And that's not mentioned in the other gospels, okay? You get the first miracle of Jesus, you get the, the account with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes to him at night, and that's where the John three sixteen verse finds its placement. You get this whole interaction with Nicodemus, and, and that's nowhere to be found in, in the other gospels, okay? You get Lazarus's resurrection, you get the washing of the disciples' feet. You get the recommissioning of Peter, which is such a great, great section in this, in this gospel, right? When Peter has just utterly flopped and failed as, as a follower of Jesus and, and is sitting there fishing after the resurrection and Jesus comes back and just reestablishes him and says, we're not done with you, right? Like, like you still have great things before you, okay? So we, so we get that in this gospel. We get some specific teachings about the Holy Spirit, we get all of the I am sayings, the, the, the I am the true vine, I am the good shepherd, right? I am the light of the world. We'll, we'll delve into all of those I am sayings. Uh, we get many discourses or teachings that aren't found in the other gospels. In fact, one commentator estimates that 90% of this book is not found in the other gospels. That's, that's a heavy amount here, okay? So a uh, lot of new stuff being included. The miracles that are mentioned, the water to wine we mentioned, the healing of the official son, the healing of a lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of the blind, uh, raising Lazarus, the miraculous catch of fish. Then you tack on the resurrection to that eight and you get all the miracles that are mentioned in this gospel. Some of those unique discourses that are found here, uh, the one on the new birth with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus being the water of life, Jesus being the divine son, Jesus being the bread of life, the life-giving spirit, the light of the world, the good shepherd, Okay, what we're going to also find, so we got specific miracles and discourses, some things that are assumed in this gospel as though you should have already kind of heard this in the other three gospels, right? Um, chapter 3, verse 24 of John, he makes a comment as though you should already be aware of this, and he never really mentions it again. John chapter 3, verse 24, talking about John the Baptist, he says, um, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. All right, we, we, don't, we don't get the, the description of how he goes into prison here. He just says, you know, John the Baptist. Oh, and by the way, he hadn't been put in prison yet. Like, like that's why he's still ministering because he hadn't been put in prison. Where would we find out that he's been put in prison? In the other gospels. So again, potentially why we would think that John was written later because he's assuming that his readers have already read the accounts of Jesus and know some of these details, okay? Another thing that he assumes in John chapter 11, verse 2, talking about going to visit uh, dead Lazarus and his family, it says in verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. Well, we haven't gotten the story about Mary doing this. We get it later in this gospel, but he hasn't even mentioned this yet. But he says, you know, Mary, the one that, that you already know, anoints his feet with oil. Well, he hasn't given us that information. So he's assuming that we already are aware of that information, most likely from the other gospels. Okay, so it's, some things are assumed here, but he also fills in the gaps for some things for us as well. The other three gospels in a variety talk about um, Jesus's enemies mocking and accusing him of destroying the temple and rebuilding it, right? So, so they're, they're at his crucifixion and they're giving him a hard time about this. Well, the other three gospels don't mention when Jesus talked about that. Right? They just included it there at the crucifixion scene. John gives us context for when he said those things, okay? So he fills in the gaps there. Why are they talking about him tearing down the temple? 
John says, oh, this is when he taught us that. This is when he explained that, okay? The other gospels reference Jesus sending the crowds away after the mass feeding, but John tells us why he did that. They were trying to, they were trying to crown him king. And so Jesus says, we got, we got to back off here because that's not my destination. That's not where I'm going right now. I'm going to the cross, not to the palace. So he tells us why he sent this group of people away. Um, the other gospels reference Jesus being taken to Pilate, but John explains why he had to go to Pilate. Why was that? Because the Jews didn't have capital punishment rights, right? They, they wanted him dead. They decided that they wanted him dead, but they can't kill him. Like they're under Roman authority. They don't have the right to kill anybody. That has to go to the higher authorities. So all the other gospels tell us that Jesus went to Pilate. But if you don't know that context, you're just reading it thinking, man, why they didn't just do it themselves, right? Well, they didn't do it themselves because they couldn't do it themselves, right? And so they bring him to Pilate and John explains that to us as well. So he fills in some of the gaps, okay? The purpose of this gospel, I've read it to you. John 20, 30 through 31, it's the thesis or the purpose statement of the book. It's real similar to John's style in 1 John, when in 1 John 5, 13, he says, why have I written this book? So that you'll know that you have eternal life, right? He writes 1 John to give assurance to the believer of their salvation, okay? So where do you go when you're doubting your salvation? You go to 1 John, because it's written to prove to you that you're a believer, to give you the assurance for you to be able to test yourself to make sure that you're a follower of Jesus. He writes this gospel to, to have us believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and to receive that new life from him. Okay, so he gives us that purpose statement, which is super helpful for us to know why he wrote the book. I told you earlier, he self-admittedly doesn't include everything. So nobody needs to panic as to why the baptism isn't here. He also doesn't mention the Lord's Supper here, right? We don't have to panic and say, man, can, is this even reliable? It's absolutely reliable because John says, man, if I wrote down everything, like, I don't think I could write, I don't think the world could hold the amount of books. I mean, think about the, um, think about the stories, the conversations, and the sermons that none of these four wrote down. I I mean, they're, they're walking everywhere, right? And they're talking all the time, I'm sure. There's plenty of other things that, that were never written down for us. And John said, I'm going to give you some specific things because I, I, my hand would probably fall off if I tried to give you everything. Not only would the, would the world not hold all the books, my hand couldn't possibly write all of those books. But he said, the things that I'm going to write down are the really, really important things. The, the things that help you believe in this Jesus, not just know about him, but to really trust him, to really trust him. Okay. Um, so it's written to produce that initial faith like we talked about and a continuance in the faith. He wants to bring us to faith and then deepen our faith. So this gospel's for all of us here today, not just for unbelievers, not just for new believers, but for all believers, because all of our faith can be deepened through this study, okay? There's two purposes that we kind of see in this John 20, 30 through 31 statement. There's a, so everything chosen specifically helps us to believe. There's an apologetical purpose here in this statement, and that's to show us the identity of Jesus, right? He says, I want you to believe something specific about Jesus. Not just believe in Jesus, but there's some specific right theology that you need to know about Jesus. You need to know who he is, right? That, that he is the Christ, the son of God. Why is that important? Because we need to know when people show up at our doorstep talking about Jesus, that we're not talking about the same person, right? Like, like you have developed and designed and created somebody and given him the name Jesus, and it's not the same Jesus of this gospel of John, right? The, the Jesus that I worship is the Messiah. He is the Christ, and he's the son of God. He's not just a human being, that, that, he, that he is a divine Messiah, right? And so we're going to talk about the humanity and the deity of Jesus throughout this gospel. But what John is saying here is that I've written this so that your theology is right about Jesus. Because think about it, if he's written this kind of later in church history, the 80 to 90 range, there's already a whole lot of false stuff going around about Jesus, right? That he, that he wasn't really a man, that he just kind of took on the form of a man. Or he was absolutely a man, but certainly not God, right? He's a created being of God. We can't give him, can't give him God-like status. So all kinds of false teachings circulating, 
right? And we've talked about some of those in Hebrews, talked about some of them in Revelation. And John's saying, here's the right things to believe about Jesus. And for you to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe rightly about Jesus to make sure that you're following the right Jesus and not the Jesus of the Mormons, not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness. The Jesus of the gospel of John is who he is interested in us believing in and trusting in. Okay, so the apologetical purpose, but then you have this evangelical purpose, and that's for us to trust him, right? Not so you can pass a theological test in seminary about Jesus, not so that you can look very profound and knowledgeable talking about Jesus, but so that when you leave that discussion or you leave that seminary test or or wherever it is that you're demonstrating knowledge of Jesus, you leave that setting and your life looks different because of your belief in Jesus, because of the knowledge of Jesus, your life looks radically different, okay? So the evangelical purpose is for us to trust in Jesus, and we need both, right? I can't, I can't trust in Jesus if I don't know Jesus rightly. I can't, I can't trust in a Jesus that I don't really know. So I have to know him. I have to have the apologetical piece. I have to know who he is. I have to, to understand his identity. His, his identity gives me all the reason to trust in him. Right? Why, why would I put all my trust in a human being? Right? Every human being I've ever been around has failed me in some form or capacity. And even on my best days, I have to admit that I'm a failure as well. So I've never come across a human being that is worthy of my trust. Right? But what if he's, what if he's just God? Well, we learn from Hebrews, man, he becomes Jesus. Why? So he can be sympathetic towards all of our weaknesses. Right? He enhances his reason to be trusted. Not that he's untrustable if he's just God, just a spirit being, but he becomes all the more trustable when he becomes Jesus, this, this human being who takes on the humanity to experience all of our, our, all of our temptations and all of our sufferings. He's, he's the high priest who gets us. He's the high priest who understands us is what the author of Hebrews reminds us of. So, this, this, this correct theology of Jesus is so important if I'm going to keep trusting him. This, this right identity of Jesus is something that I have to know, okay? And that right theology is meant to lead me to the right destiny, that not only do I believe in Jesus, but if I do that, by believing in him, I'm going to have life in his name, okay? So that gives us an idea of who wrote it, when he wrote it, why he wrote it, how it's uniquely different from the other gospels. And because of that, I'm going to do my best to not go to the other gospels a whole lot when there is parallelism there. Why? Because I don't want to muddy the waters either for us, right? The purpose, John says, everything that I've written, I chose specifically for you to believe in Jesus. I don't want to add to it in thinking, man, if I was John, I would have included this here. So we're going to include this in our study, right? Like I want to really still steer clear of adding too much to our discussion because I don't want to muddy the waters at all. I want us to be very clear at the end of this study, whenever that is, and we get to John chapter 20, that we can say, man, this was true. This was true. I believe him more today than I did when we started this study. My my theology, my theological understanding of him as the Messiah, the Son of God, has increased. And as it's increased, my life also has been changed more than it was before we started this study. Okay? Um, And and as I told you in prayer time, my, my hope and prayer is that some of our kids are Christians by the end of this study. Whether they're sitting in here right now with us, or whether that comes as a fruit of discussion that you take with the family worship questions. If he's written for the purpose of people believing in Jesus, man, my hope and prayer is that we see that happen. We see that happen for people in our church that aren't currently believers to become believers, okay? Let's go back here. I'm gonna give you a couple of things, outline format from John chapter 20, all right? So going back to John chapter 20, Roman numeral one for those that are keeping notes. We need to believe right theology about Jesus. And that right theology is tied to him being the Messiah. The Messiah. For our kids, believe Jesus is the Messiah. And you've got that question there in your notes. What does Christ mean? It means Messiah. Okay? So Christ isn't his last name, right? It's not Jesus Christ as his last name. Like we think of two names being a last name and a first name. It's his title. It's what he is. It's his possession. It's, 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 it's the, the role that he comes to fulfill, this long-awaited role that God's people were hoping for. Okay, so believe that he is the Messiah. That right theology needs to drive our belief system about Jesus. Okay, 
Let's look at a couple of questions to help us with that understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus. Number one, how do we believe? How do we believe? And it's important that we differentiate between different types of belief here because James chapter 2 verse 19 tells us that even the demons believe, right? You ask, you ask people, you ask, yes, the demons, they're, they're probably going to pass a theological exam about the, about the personhood of Jesus. They, they believe, they believe in the one God, right? James says they believe and they even shudder at it. So there is a way to believe some of these things that we're going to talk about and it not be a salvation type of belief. James chapter two reminds us of that. John chapter three probably gives us insight into the difference between our belief and the demon's belief. John chapter three, verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice he doesn't say whoever does not believe shall not see life. He says whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. He necessarily connects belief and obedience here, right? He says, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the son, then you have eternal life, which necessarily means you obey the son if you hope to see life so that the wrath of God doesn't remain on you. So the belief that he's describing here is a life-changing type of belief. It's, it's, it's the one who was not obedient to Jesus, who now believes in Jesus and becomes obedient to him. His, his course of life is now altered. His course of life is now different, right? So he believes in Jesus, and he also now obeys Jesus. That belief drives his new life. Up in my notes, John is not meant, uh, meant here trying to fill our heads with facts or knowledge only. He wants the, the stories, the, the discourses, the, the discussion about miracles. He wants everything that he writes here to lead us to truth and trust more and more. Right? So, so here's everything that you need to know about Jesus from a trusting standpoint. I want you to believe it, and I want your life to be changed by it, is what John is writing to us here. <laughs> Let me give you a definition that you can take with you, and this definition can be shared and explained with coworkers and with your children, right? So it, the, the concept of believing in Jesus doesn't have to be watered down, altered, or changed based on our audience. This is, this is the, the, the idea of what we mean by saving faith, Christian faith, that based on the facts and evidence available, one determines something to be true and then allows the choices, patterns, and direction of their life to be shaped by that conviction of truth. So, Christian faith is not blind faith, right? Like we're not expecting or asking anybody to believe in Jesus without sufficient facts and evidence. I've told you before, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus only because the Bible says it, but because it's the only thing that makes sense given the evidence that we have an empty tomb, that 500 people saw him alive, right? That they couldn't have all been delusional at the same time and that the lives of the disciples were radically changed. I think I've shared with you before, I sat in a seminary class with Gary Habermas, who is kind of a world-renowned apologist in regards to the resurrection. And so he's giving us lists. He says, these are the things that when I'm having my debates around the world with people who don't believe in the resurrection, that they believe is true. They believe that there was an empty tomb. They believe that the disciples' lives were radically changed. They believe that there was a strong rumor going around about Jesus being back from the dead that started Christianity. I mean, they, they believe basically everything that we believe. They just don't believe he's back from the dead. But every other thing about it, all the other evidence they believe, yeah, those things are true. It's just that he didn't come back from the dead. <clears throat> Whereas I look at the evidence and say, that's the only thing that makes sense is that he came back from the dead, right? Like, like he had to come back from the dead if all of these other things are true. So when we say believe in Jesus, we're saying, man, based on the facts and the evidence that's available, based on everything that John's going to write in his gospel, we determine it to be true. But we don't just stop there. We allow the conviction about that truth to shape our choices, patterns, and direction of our life. That's what believing faith does. Believing faith steps back and says, okay, I've seen the evidence. I've seen the facts. I believe this to be true. And I believe it so to be true that my life's going to look different moving forward. That's what, that's what it means when we say believe in Jesus here. 
Look at the facts. Look at the evidence. John's going to give it to us. Believe it to be true if you believe it to be true. Evaluate it. Assess it. And if you determine it to be true, it has to shape the choices and patterns and direction of your life. Has to. Because the things that we're talking about being true, they necessarily do that. Right? It necessitates someone knowing and then determining that knowledge is worth changing my life for. That's what it means for how do we believe? How do we believe? We look at the evidence. We determine if we think it's true or false. If we think it's false, we walk away from it. We just don't follow Jesus. Why try to be obedient to somebody that we don't believe in, right? So we, we, just, we just dismiss him if we don't believe that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God, that he, that he rose from the dead. But if we do believe it, it changes our life, okay? What are we specifically told to believe? We could bring in some other passages of some other things that expound upon this, but I think there's two clear things that we're told to believe here. Number one, that he's the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. He's that long-awaited one that God's people have been longing for since Genesis chapter 3 when everything went wrong in the garden. He says, I've, I've chosen specifically the things that I'm writing to you in this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the New Testament word for Messiah, that he's the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of the expectant climate from the Old Testament. I mean, you read through the Old Testament, everything is just looking forward to this right? When is, the, when is the Messiah, when is the promised one from Genesis 3, the, the, the serpent killer coming, right? When is he coming? Eve longed for it when she had boys, right? Like she longed for this to be the one who was going to set things right, who was going to bring us back to the Garden of Eden, to, to put us back where we belong, right? And then you, and then you see the, the, the longing around the, the concept of King David, so we've got this king that, that, that's been great and good and after God's own heart, but, but he's not perfect and, he, and he's got flaws. And so he's not the perfect king that we long for. When do we get that king? When, when do we see the fulfillment of that? And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that expectant climate. He's the one who comes to fulfill all the promises that God made to his people. We saw that in, in Hebrews. He's the promise keeper. He's the climax of the biblical narrative of God creating, man rebelling, and God fixing. He is the solution, okay? So we have to believe that to be saved. We have to believe that he is God's solution for man's problem. John chapter 1, verse 41, if you want to jot that down, that's where we see the connection between the term Christ and Messiah, all right? So he's the Messiah, but he's also, number two, divine, He's not just a man, but he's the God-man. And that piece is important as well. Because as we work through this, we'll see that some people see him as just a man. Some people see him as God, but not really in fleshly format. And we have to believe both. We have to believe that he's the Messiah. He's the sent one from God. He's the, he's the, the proper priest that we see in the book of Hebrews. And to be a priest, there were certain things that had to be true about him that we saw in the book of Hebrews. He has to be a man. He has to be sympathetic towards those that he represents. And he is that according to the book of Hebrews, but he has to be God as well. He can't just be the best version of man that we've ever seen. He has to be God. And John says, that's what I want you to believe about him, that he's everything that's been promised and he's God. He's everything promised and he's God. Number three, why do we need to believe this? Why do we need to believe this? Is it, is it a preference thing? Is it something that we can do without? Well, John goes on to say, the reason that I want you to believe this is so that you can have life in his name. We need life. We need life. And he says this throughout his gospel. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Why do we need to believe this? Because we need to avoid the condemnation that comes from our sin, right? We want everlasting life. The only way to get it is through Jesus. We can't get everlasting life ourselves. If we don't believe in Jesus, we get condemnation. John 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 24. John 8, 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the whole necessary aspect of the belief is that we need life. Otherwise we die and we die in condemnation. The only way to everlasting life, the only way to meaningful life is to believe in Jesus. 
Okay, so two things here that the apologetical piece, believe right theology about Jesus, get him right, get his identity right, that he's the Messiah and he's also God, right? And then number two, live differently based on your beliefs about Jesus. Live differently based on your beliefs about Jesus. For our kids, live like you believe it. So you take that fact, you take that evidence, you believe it to be true, but what Jesus says about himself doesn't allow you to just believe it as factually true, right? You can believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but that doesn't, that doesn't change my life one bit today. I don't, I, don't, I don't care about that on a daily basis. I don't, I don't care about that on a daily basis. So I can believe that Jesus is this Messiah, but there's something different about being a Messiah than being a president, right? Because the one makes a good documentary, right? The other radically changes the choices that I make tomorrow, radically changes my choices tomorrow. George Washington being the first president has no bearing on what I do tomorrow, really, besides the fact that he helped lay the foundation for the country that I live in. But I don't think about that on a daily basis. I don't ever ask, what would George Washington do? What does he want me to do in this situation, right? But Jesus, Jesus has told me exactly what to do in most of the situations that I face and certainly is empowering and sustaining me through those situations, right? So I told you earlier, there's two aspects of living differently. One, we get life now. So he says, I want, I want you to have life in him. Believe Jesus. Believe that he's the Christ. Believe that he's the son of God. Why? So that you can have life in him. You can have life now and life in the future. Life now and life in the future. So enjoy new life now. I put in my notes, all my life, this is my desire, all my life to be determined by what I believe about Jesus. So my belief in Jesus has shaped my life. I got saved at an early age, right? I got saved when I was five, six years old, put my faith and trust in Jesus, realized that I was a sinner, realized that if things didn't change, I was going to die in condemnation. That is as good of a kid as I tried to be, that, that I was not perfect and that it took perfection to, to be holy in God's eyes and that Jesus was the only, only perfect man. So I, so I understood those concepts. Certainly my understanding has deepened over the years in what those things really mean. But I got it. I got the, 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 the root of the gospel. I got that at an early age. And it has forever been changing the choices and the decisions that I make. Now, are there times when I fall? Absolutely. Are there, there are times when I wander? Absolutely. But Jesus keeps me coming back to the pattern of life that he desires for me. He does that through his Holy Spirit. So my life is determined by what I believe about Jesus. And the only way that my life would ever, uh, should ever change and I should go in a completely different direction is if my convictions about Jesus change. I shared with you and I, and I challenged our youth kids um, earlier, this, or early, maybe last early fall, that the only reason you should ever walk away from Jesus is not because you get disappointed in how a Christian treats you, right? We're gonna be let down by other Christians. So I don't walk away from Jesus because my pastor failed me or my youth pastor failed me or a missionary failed me or my discipler failed me. I don't, I don't walk away from Jesus because I find some type of moral corruption in another Christian, right? I don't walk away from Jesus because I go through some difficult trial, right? Where a loved one dies or I lose a job. I don't walk away from Jesus for those things because I didn't come to Jesus for those things. He didn't promise me those things. So the only reason I walk away from Jesus is if I start to believe differently about Jesus, that he didn't come back from the dead. Because as long as I believe that he came back from the dead and no new evidence has been produced to change my opinion about that, I don't walk away from him. And I therefore don't change my pattern of life either because he has dictated to me how to live my life. So let, let me show you how this works in real life. As, as much as I love Lauren, right? As beautiful as I think she is, as much of a servant's heart as I believe she possesses, as good as a mom as she is to our kids. I don't abandon that marriage ever if her looks change or if her lack of selfishness changes or if, her in, or if she becomes incompetent in being a parent. I don't walk away from my marriage for that because God's called me to stay committed to that marriage. Jesus has called me to be stay committed to that marriage. So it's not Lauren that changes that dictates whether I stay in that marriage or not. It's whether Jesus changes or not. So as long as I believe that Jesus came back from the dead, as long as I believe he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God, and that he offers life eternal, I let him dictate what my life looks like. And he says, when I'm married, I stay with my wife. 
And the only way that I would change that, the only way that I should ever change is if Jesus changes, not Lauren. Okay. We were talking, um, man, we do these things and we do a poor job of telling you about some of the things that we do with our youth. Okay. We do these things called learn and burns with our, with our, with our older guys. Okay. So we've got three. So our, and it's not just for guys. When the girls reach this age, we'll do it with the girls too. And we'll call it something different. Um, we'll start working on a name for that. All right. But learn and burns. These are times where we take our older, our older young guys in the youth group. We put them around a campfire with, with men in our church and we talk about relevant topics for their life. Okay. So we were having this this past Friday night. This is the first one that I've been asked to participate in, but we've had men all over our church that have been a part of this. Okay. And so I was talking with our guys and, and the, the topic for the, the night was finances. How have you handled your finances? All that kind of stuff. And so I was telling our guys, I said, man, there's two things that cause Christians to fall most of the time. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's issues involving sex and money. Right. And so we were talking about this. And so I was telling them how to protect themselves in both areas. Right. So in regards to that, I, I was, I, I was saying, I don't find contentment when I have enough money. I was telling our guys, man, the temptation for you guys with money is that you're either going to be greedy with it or you're going to be covetous of it. And you're going to want to do anything and everything you can to get more of it. Right. And, I, and, I, and so what, what, what my contentment level is not tied to the amount of money that I have. Paul tells us that, right? He says, I've learned to be content with a lot of stuff and with a little stuff. My contentment level doesn't shift based on the amount of money that I have, right? He says, my contentment's in Jesus, right? So I don't find contentment when I have enough money. I find contentment because Jesus, because what did Hebrews 13 tell us? He says, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Because Jesus is with you and never forsakes you. Right? My contentment and my security rests in Jesus who doesn't change. My finances change. My finances change. You, you, can, you can lose jobs. You can have your salaries decrease. Your taxes can change. And so your take-home pay looks different. My, my contentment doesn't rest in the amount of money that I have. I don't persevere through trials if I can find a justification or an explanation for them. Right? Like, like, I don't make it through something if I can find some way to, to explain why this is happening. I make it through trials because I believe that God is sovereign and, and, and works good in the midst of them, even if I never see the good. And there's been plenty of trials that I've come through, and I look back and say, I'm still looking for the good in that. I don't know what it is yet, but I trust that it's there because God has promised that to me. Okay, so, so what does it mean to believe in Jesus in a way that changes your life? And it means that you stay in your marriage no matter how much your spouse changes, no matter how much they change, because Jesus has called you to stay there, right? He's called you to stay there. And, and he's given you all the guidance and provisions for when, when you would not stay there, if that ever comes, right? We, we don't find contentment and joy in our money. We find our contentment and joy in Jesus, who, who is better than money, right? We don't, we don't find a, a, a way to push through trials if we can explain the trial. We push through it because we believe things about Jesus. Our belief about Jesus changes the way that we live our life. It has to, or, or, it's not, or it's not saving faith. It's not saving belief. It may have stopped short where you believe some facts, but you've never let those facts penetrate your heart. So we enjoy new life now. Changes the way we live, changes the way we make decisions, changes the way that, that we pattern our life. Number two, we enjoy new life to come too. Right, the only way we escape condemnation, the only way we experience everlasting life is through a right belief in Jesus. All right? So from an application standpoint, looking towards the end of our study, prepare to use this study as a means of strengthening your faith while rescuing others from darkness. Twofold purpose here. I want the gospel of John from an application standpoint to strengthen your faith if you're a believer. I also want it to give you the, the appropriate ammunition in rescuing others from darkness. That's the purpose of the book, right? What better, what better application for the things that we're studying than to share it with other people in your life that you know do not believe? It'd be one thing for me to tell you, hey, go study the Gospel of John and then teach that to somebody else. We're going to do it for you here. We're going to do it for you. We're going to study this gospel with a twofold purpose of strengthening your faith because it's not just about initial faith. It's continuance in the faith that we're looking for. It's life-changing faith that we want to see. So we want to see your faith strengthened. We want to see you take what you're learning 
and share it with others. Share it with your kids, right? What, what a joy to be baptizing people at the end of this study, people who have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to be able to celebrate new life in him as a result of this study, okay? So from a family worship question standpoint, Discuss what it means to believe in Jesus and take that definition. Talk about the fact that, man, when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're talking about believing in factual things about Jesus, things that he said, things that he did, things that other people saw about him. And that if those things are really true, it changes the way that we live our life, that we don't just believe in Jesus, we obey Jesus if we truly believe in Jesus. And then number two, take some time in your family. For those that are believers, let them share potentially with other family members who aren't. Let one of your older kids who is a believer share what, what it looked like for them to come to Jesus for the, younger, for the younger sibling, right? Let's take some time as a family this week to talk about when we came to follow Jesus. Let others in our family who maybe aren't believers hear that, hear that from us, okay? Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we're excited about the things that you're gonna teach us. We're excited about the intentional uh, focus that we get to give to the the earthly ministry of Jesus. And God, we recognize that the earthly ministry is just a blip on the screen for everything that Jesus has been doing. As your divine son, he has always existed. He has always been the, the creator and sustainer of this world. But God, we're excited to see in a condensed format some really important things about what he said and what he did that are meant to strengthen our faith. And so God, I'm praying that when you inspired John to write this gospel, with this strict purpose of increasing our faith and belief in a way that changes our life, that we would see that occur in our lives here, that we would be um, stronger believers at the end of this study, that we would have our faith and trust increase due to the knowledge that we obtain about Jesus. But God, we, won't, we don't want to stop there. We don't want our lives to look exactly the same at the end of this study. God, I pray that our lives would look radically different. God, that you would strengthen marriages that you would increase our contentment, that you would um, keep us persevering. Not because our spouse changes in the way that we want them to, not because we get a, a raise this year, not because we can figure out what you were doing in the midst of circumstances. God, I pray that we would be able to do those things because we, we realize if Jesus is who he says he is and we've put our faith and trust in that, and he has every right to dictate how we do things. So God, increase and strengthen our faith. And God, for those that are in our church, a part of our church that are not believers, particularly our kids who are growing up in Christian homes and they're hearing these things, but have yet maybe to connect all the dots and realize their own need to believe in you. God, I pray that we would see their belief. God, I pray that the kids who sit in here who are, are easily distracted and, and can become very bored potentially and having to sit and listen to me talk about you. God, I pray that you would allow my words at some point in each sermon to connect with them in a way that creates questions in their mind to where they go home and ask mommy and daddy for clarification on things. That, that pieces of what they hear, if nothing else, would lay a foundation for, for healthy discussion outside of here. God, we pray that our kids would, would become Christians because of this study. We thank you for the things that you're going to do. We thank you for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.